Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. On the Birds is part of Baltimore Sports and Life Radio. And we've got a lot to get to on tonight's episode. Trey Mancini has been traded to the Houston Astros for pitching prospects, Chase McDermott and Shane Johnson. We're going to dive in, or excuse me, Seth Johnson. We're going to dive into that trade, as well as news about the MLB draft signing deadline, who the Orioles managed to sign, who they didn't sign. And finally, the promotion of John Rhodes, who after a productive run at High A Aberdeen, will join the increasingly exciting Bowie Bay Sox lineup. Uh, but first, we want to start the show by welcoming a new member of our Patreon community, and I will turn that over to Bob. Yes, Brian Hoffman, thank you for joining today. Uh, August 1st is always a great time, first of the month, to join up. You get the most bang for your buck, and welcome aboard. Thank you for joining the community. And we'll get in now to the big news of the day, which is that the Orioles have traded the longest tenured member of their organization up until now, Trey Mancini, to the Houston Astros as part of a three-team trade that will get the Orioles two pitching prospects in return, Seth Johnson, a right-handed pitcher who had been with the Tampa Bay Rays system, and Chase McDermott, who had been with the Houston Astros. Mancini was in the middle of a solid year with the Orioles, who have been surprised, been playing surprisingly good baseball. However, with him, his free agency looming at the end of the year and a mutual option that was unlikely to be exercised by both sides at the end of this year, it has seemed all along that a trade was possible. In the end, I would assess the return that the Orioles got as more upside than I expected, albeit with some risk involved. So, Nick, I'll start with you. Just kind of get into the nuances of this trade and what the Orioles are getting back. Uh, I think you said it best and Vivek's comment there said it best as well. Uh, just a lot more than what I think any of us imagined uh, in this return. And, you know, we'll talk about the personal feelings, the emotional side of this later on, but just looking at the guys who the Orioles got back, I mean, Seth Johnson, you put aside who the Orioles dealt and you just look at a player of Mancini's caliber, which everyone from the start said that you trade Trey Mancini, right? You're not going to get anything of note in return. I don't know how many times I saw the, we're only going to get two 16 year old Dominican kids for Trey Mancini. So why trade him? I've seen that comment a thousand times, right? Instead, Orioles were able to land the six ranked prospect in the Rays organization, according to Fangraphs, 50 future value prospect with a fastball that goes up to 99 miles an hour, a 60 grade slider, 50 grade curveball. Pretty rave reviews on that pitch from some of the early looks that, I, that I've seen. I'm trying to navigate this process, this emotionally, uh, and learn about who these guys are as my two-year-old has a nuclear meltdown in the background. Uh, but, um, you know, the I, I know he's going to get knocked down because of the surgery, Tommy John surgery that he's having, but I think Johnson is someone who there's an argument that he could land in the top 10 top 15 for sure of arguably the league's top farm system. And I don't, I wouldn't disagree with anyone if they said that Seth Johnson is now our third best pitching prospect in this organization. I feel like that was supposed to be Nolan McClain who will talk about it later on, but uh, 
you know, the Orioles were able to go out and acquire a legitimate starting pitching prospect here. Uh, and I, I think I did find a report that is actually former prospects live member, now current Orioles uh, analyst, Joe Drake, it had a pretty extensive report last year on Seth Johnson. That I found was fastball up to 98 with good arm side run can beat hitters up it, up with it above the zone curve and slider flash plus change up has some fade and tumble deep enough repertoire to start, but raw and still learning how to pitch because he was a shortstop for a while there. Right. So, and those are just some of the comments from his 2021 review. And clearly he's improved a lot since uh, joining the Rays organization, which is not shocking at all. So I think it's going to take a while because he's not going to pitch probably next until late next year, if we see him at all. Uh, but certainly that helped in the Orioles getting him. He's also rule five. That rule five situation is going to be huge. That adds a whole new wrinkle to this as well. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good return. And just for Seth Johnson's sake, we talk about Chase McDermott in a minute, but I think just that alone, uh, Orioles got a really good player here. Yeah, honestly, I am very pleasantly surprised with the return that they got from Antini. I was not expecting, I was expecting him to be traded for a couple lower level prospects, but we, we did pretty well here. I think the Rays overpaid <laughs> to get rid of Seth Johnson, obviously because of the Tommy John surgery and they're just stacked with depth left and right so they can afford to do this kind of stuff. But if it weren't for the injury, I mean, this is a guy that could have been a top 100 prospect in the next six months or so. And if you're not going to get that kind of upside, I like the risk that you're taking that, you know, we'll let him get him with our trainers. I don't think he's even had the surgery yet. Get him with our staff and bring him up back to health in our own way and how we want to do it. And if he comes back the same guy he was before, then you've got a legitimate potential mid to back of the rotation starter at worst or at best and uh, a good reliever at worst and chase mcdermott i mean this is a guy who he's up to 98 miles per hour with his fastball he's got some some good spin and stuff and he's got his weakest pitch is a change up which we know orioles can improve that so i think you got two pretty high upside arms here for a guy who is going to be a free agent in two months, and Elias even said, hey, we'll talk to him in the offseason. We'll talk to Trey in the offseason, see what he what he's thinking about. I think that's pretty much just empty words, but you never know. And, um, yeah, I'm surprised that the Orioles got more for Trey Mancini than the Royals got for Anthony Benintendi. That's a good point, Bobby. You, know, you would feel like Benintendi as an outfielder would have a little bit higher trade value than Mancini. And yet I think the Orioles objectively did better in this trade than the Royals did in the Benintendi deal. Johnson is worth pointing out that despite being 23, he's going to turn 24 in September. It's fairly raw for a pitcher. He started out his collegiate career at Lewisburg College and didn't pitch until his sophomore year. And even then was not fully focused on pitching. It wasn't until he got to Campbell for his junior year in 2019 that he was, you know, went to the mound full time. The Rays took him as the 40th selection in that year's draft. And since then, he's been a guy that has moved up steadily in their farm system rankings. You would have to believe, if not for the minor league season being lost in 2020, probably would have opened this year in double A, um, if not higher. Not to mention, he only had 17 innings before the, the 2020 shutdown. So you're looking at a pitcher that's still fairly raw, but it has a considerable amount of upside with the Orioles though. And it's interesting because of this 40 man roster crunch. Johnson is going to be going down Tommy John surgery reportedly within the next few days. So you're probably looking at at least a year, if not more before we see him on the mound again, but you're also facing a similar decision with Kyle Bronovitz and Zach peak. 
Um, so, you know, Peak has an elbow injury. Bronovich had Tommy John surgery early in the year. So the Orioles going to have to make some tough decisions there. But I'd have to imagine that Johnson definitely can be protected when that decision is made because you're giving up Trey Mancini to get him. And while I don't think McDermott is far behind, I'm going to get into McDermott in a minute. Johnson is clearly a high upside guy in this deal. Yeah, Chris Restar has a great uh, scouting report of him up on Twitter. He says the standout facet of Johnson's profiles is pristine delivery. It's simple delivery, but he re- repeats it as well as someone who has been throwing that way for years, which, as we noted, he just switched to pitching in 2019. From a repertoire standpoint, Johnson's best pitch is a mid to high 90s fastball. He throws up in the zone and a slider that he has experiment- <laughs> can't talk tonight. experimented with to produce different shapes and velos. Seems to have settled on throwing the slider harder and straighter. He has shown signs of a changeup that he's develop- developing, but he doesn't use it very often. I'm sure that will change. And uh, yeah, you don't trade for this guy unless you're going to protect him on the 40 man. This is you can easily put him on the 60 man IL as soon as you know. I can't remember if it's in spring training that you can start doing that or opening day, but either way, I mean, this is a guy you're going to protect. So that's one less spot for the other guys. Just makes those choices even harder this offseason. I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot coming up, but he'll be around and uh, hopefully he recovers well and, and hits spring training or fall instructionals in 2023. Yeah. It's, it's just another name. Cause you know, we're going to get into you know, the rule five stuff after the season, obviously and closer to that December. When is the dead? I don't know when the deadline to protect guys is going to be sometime November. Yeah. Probably. Usually late November. It's like mid to late November. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is the first year where we're going to start to see a really deep, class of guys who are really impressive prospects and impressing at the upper levels of the minor leagues. And so uh, you definitely going to want to protect Seth Johnson here. And yeah, you guys mentioned Bronovich and peak recovering from Tommy John surgeries. Uh, well, peak, it hasn't had his yet officially. Uh, we don't even know for sure if he's having it or if he's still going to go the rehab route, but either way, he's going to be out for a significant amount of time. Uh, Brnovich is in the process of rehabbing and then Brendan Hanafy is also in that list as well. He's just coming back from Tommy John surgery. That's another unique case, but uh, a lot of Tommy John issues going around, but um, yeah, Seth Johnson is definitely the high ceiling here. I think he's, he's, he's an unbelievable prospect in his own right. And if, again, you just take the emotional side of this, of who we traded to get him for the fact that he's in this organization, he's not one of the top pitching prospects in this system. This is what people want. People want those high ceiling, not even just the high ceiling. They want those legitimate starting pitching prospects. Like Seth Johnson is one of those now. It just, it sucks that like, and it would be, this is just so Orioles at this point. Michael Elias goes and goes big in terms of Orioles big uh, in drafting a pitcher early on in the draft. And he doesn't sign with the organization that we'll talk about later on. And then you trade for this big time pitching prospect uh, and he's got time and Johnny's out for the year. But um. Yeah, like I don't know if I mentioned on the show before, but uh, I've or to you guys off to the side, but I used to write for uh, an SB Nation blog called Hustle Belt. They covered the MAC, the Mid American uh, Conference over there. And don't ask why I joined, but uh, <laughs> I covered during the 2020 shutdown when COVID was going on. And you, it was just those random pop up summer baseball leagues. Uh, I, I covered Mac baseball prospects then, and then the beginning of the 2021 season. And so I'm familiar with Chase McDermott during his time at Ball State because I was writing about Ball State baseball at the time. And this is a school that's produced a lot of noteworthy MLB pitching draft picks over the last couple of years. And so many guys that I had hoped over the last year or two the Orioles would take in, in the in their recent draft classes. But 
if you look at McDermott's age and what level he's at and his ERA, you're missing out on a really good prospect here. And I know in college, the issue was the walks. Struck out a ton of bat- a ton of batters, huge fastball, electric fastball. He can get up to 98 miles an hour. But the walks haunted him a bit. He improved on those numbers for sure uh, as he ended his time at Ball State. And those issues have seemed to come back since he's been with the Astros. But he had just one full year to start in college. He had Tommy John surgery early on, I think right before college. He had another significant injury over there. COVID season in 2020, so that interrupted his timeline as well. So I just think that I remember talking to a few different people who watched him live in these pop-up COVID summer leagues. And every single person I talked to who were scouting these leagues said Chase McDermott was the guy who stood out among everybody. This is a guy they loved. Uh, and so he's he's a really interesting prospect, I think. Fastball metrics, He when you talk about Chase McDermott, who he is as a pitcher, the descriptions are very similar to all the pitchers that the Orioles just drafted recently that we talked about. Fastball metrics are super impressive. Slider's a plus pitch. Curveball can be a big league pitch, and there's a work-in-progress changeup. And so I, I just think that if you clean up that command, which is a big issue with him, you clean that up, he climbs up prospect rankings here over the next year or two. And now you've got two top 20, top 25 prospects for Trey Mancini when I thought at best we'd get one like Alex Wells-level prospect for Trey Mancini. And now we got two guys who are entering pretty high in arguably the league's top farm system. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at his home and away numbers, um, we Aberdeen was just in Asheville right this past week, and the pitchers got lit up a bit because that ballpark is like uh, could, you could play the Little League World Series there, let's say. And uh, his home away splits very much mirror that because he has a 7.41 ERA at home over 37 and two-thirds innings with a 1.73 whip on the road, a 3.41 ERA over 34 and a third innings with a 1.02 whip. So he's given up twice as many home runs at home as he has on the, on the road. You get him in Aberdeen. He's going to look like uh, <laughs> Peter Van Loon pretty soon. <laughs> that rhymed. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a fan of this and he's got a big arm like we've mentioned plenty of times. And I think he fits the de- player development model that we're going with as well. He kind of makes up for the fact that McLean doesn't sign with us. He's kind of, I feel like he's got similar type stuff. And um, yeah, I'm happy with the return. I mean, I know people are upset. I know it sucks to see the emotional attachment go with Trey Mancini. And it looks like, you know, it's going to give us less of a chance to make a wild card run, but really how high were our chances to get in there and in the first place. And I really don't think we're going to lose that much on the field. Maybe in the clubhouse, it could be an issue. You know, you trade a love, the loved person away. Maybe they don't respond well, but you bring up the Yusnel Diaz, the Kyle Stowers of the world, and I think the production could be fairly easily replaced, and you're getting two pitchers that are going to be in our top 25 probably. Yeah, and those are good points about the home road splits, and I want to take a deeper dive into them because one of the things we hear about a lot with McDermott is the command, and the command is something that absolutely needs work. You know, If you're looking at the two things right now that are going to say a lot about how McDermott develops over the next couple of years – it's going to be, can he improve that change up? Because if he does, he's probably a major league starter. And if he improves his command and improves the change up, look out. He's going to be a pretty good mid-rotation starter in a few years. But to go into the home road splits, 37 and two-thirds innings at home, he has walked 28 batters. 34 and a third on the road, he has walked 15. So roughly the same amount of innings at home as on the road. 
and yet significantly fewer walks on the road. Now, that road walk rate would still be a little higher than you would like, but it's not the big as big of an issue as his overall walk rate suggests this season because there has to be some sort of you know change in approach when you're pitching at McCormick Field, which, as I said recently in one of our Patreon dailies, is America's most lovely wiffle ball field, which is exactly what it is. Asheville is a great city. McCormick Field is a good place as a fan to watch a game, but – if you sit in the lower roll rows of the seating bowl there and you look at the mound, the right field wall looks like it's right over the pitcher's shoulder. 40 feet in the air, maybe 310 from home plate. So that is not an easy ballpark to pitch in. And the idea that a guy who has the kind of stuff that McDermott has, where he's clearly a power pitcher, but also a little raw, would struggle there is not surprising at all. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that Asheville – might be the most hitter-friendly ballpark in high A right now. Yeah, and I mean, it's going to be hard to just throw strikes when you know someone could just hit it off the end of the bat and hit it out of the stadium. The opponent's batting average was 100 points uh, worse, better, lower than uh, on the road than it was at home. And yeah, it makes sense. You're trying to pitch away from contact because, you know, (laughs) it's a rough place to pitch. Yeah, you look at some of McDermott's other numbers too, right? 5.50 5.50 ERA right now in high A at Asheville, but the FIP is 4.14, so overrun lower. And then the XFIP is almost two full runs lower than his ERA. It's at 3.75 right now. So clearly it's just a lot of this is an issue of where he's pitching. And I mean, 72 innings under his belt already. He's not, he doesn't have an extensive number of innings uh, on his arm at this point in his career, but I think right now 72 innings already in high A, you have to imagine he, he probably gets sent to Aberdeen because, you know, they're sending some guys up to, to buoy here re- recently. And, you know, their pitching staff, he was a little, little something here, I feel like. Uh, some guys nursing some injuries. They're going to need some innings. Uh, so you send McDermott, put him in Aberdeen's rotation, let him work there for a couple of starts. I think he ends the year in buoy for sure. And he's an older guy with already approaching 100 innings already this season. So yeah, he could certainly end the year in buoy and get a better idea of who this guy is. We will focus now, and before we move on completely, I do want to give the summary of the full trade. As I mentioned, it's a three-team deal. Trey Mancini will go to Houston along with Jaden Murray, who was a prospect in the Rays system. The Rays, meanwhile, get center fielder Jose Siri from the Astros as a way to bolster their outfield depth down the stretch run. Losing Mancini as Orioles fans, which is what we are, is tough. Uh, This is a player who's been with the organization for a long time, has meant a lot to it, has given it a lot of great memories on the field. There's community work that goes with it. The fact that we saw him battle back from stage three colon cancer to be on the field last year, uh, his performance in the home run derby, the comeback player of the year, even the things that he was doing this season were impressive. And it's not something we're going to forget as fans. And even if he doesn't wear an Orioles uniform again, this is a guy that people are going to remember for a really long time. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many awesome moments and it turns out that his last plate appearance as an Oriole in Camden yards wasn't inside the park home run to hit off the face of Josh Lowe and was an incredible moment. He at least got a chance, you know, he soaked it in, he waved to the crowd. I think uh, it's, it's tough to lose him no matter what, but considering the fact that they were going to trade him, they did pretty well. Yeah, no hot takes here. Like if you're coming here for the hot takes, sorry to disappoint. I'm not going to scream into this microphone either about 
training training Mancini, the takes uh, and screaming have certainly taken place on social media this afternoon. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to sit here either and say like this was the right move the Orioles should have made or the Orioles should have done this or they should have done that or this team could have competed. I mentioned right before we came on the air, uh, to be honest, though, like, like when you saw the return for Luis Castillo, that was in my mind, that was like absolutely not. We're not dumping and moving backwards and all this work that we've done to get to this point, the organization's done to get to this point. There's no, zero sense in trying to unload four or five prospects for a rental or a guy who's going to, you're going to only have under control for like a year to maybe, maybe get a wild card spot. But just from the emotional side of this, right? Trey Mancini, what he meant. I mean, he's, he's forever going to be this iconic figure in Baltimore. And I don't think any Orioles fan is ever going to forget that. Um, just my own personal story with Trey is I remember, I think it was his first, uh, after his rookie year, one of the first big events he did, I can't remember if it was the, what was that thing they, they used to do right in February, right before the season started. Fan, fan Fest. Yeah. It's been so long. I forgot the name. Uh, I don't know if it was a fan fest or something else I was at, but um, it was a big event. And, you know, I'm not from Baltimore area. It's a hike for me. So it was a big event for me to go to. But Mancini, he was a young kid up there with a couple of, of other, other Orioles veterans. And some kids were asking questions. And, you know, Trey, some of the other guys up there on the panel were just like not into it, did not care. Right. It was just blowing them off. Like, these are kids. They're asking silly eight-year-old kid questions. And Trey Mancini enjoyed, clearly, genuinely enjoyed every second of that, like answering these questions, giving long responses, getting to know the kids, just really endeared himself to me. And I walked away from that just thinking this is a genuine guy. He gets it. He understands that fans are going to look up to him. Like Zach mentioned, we watched him at his lowest point of his life. We watched him when he won the biggest victory of his life. Like He, he got the girl. He returned to baseball. <laughs> yep. Like the whole deal. Um, I mean, how many of us cried real tears when we heard the news or we watched him run back out on that field at Camden Yards? I mean, it's it sucks. Uh, there's really no other way to put it. And I think whatever your emotions are, are valid for the most part. There are some that are not valid out there. Uh, but like whatever your emotions are like they're valid and just that's what these next few days are going to be it's 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 going to be a lot of processing i think for orioles fans the the quotes from nathan ruiz i was following nathan's twitter mm. account this afternoon every single one was another punch to the gut like as much as i love this return beyond belief uh those those tweets and, and those stories are going to be gut punches every time and every time i see him in a national uniform it's going to be a gut punch but yeah Absolutely. I mean, even though I'm in favor of this trade, like doesn't make it hurt any less that, you know, he's gone and you've been through all this stuff. You said it perfectly there, like great human being, great, great teammate. I'm sure everyone hated to lose him. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's why I lean onto the baseball side. Cause I'm not good at talking about <laughs> the personal stuff. Um, I want to address this comment from Simkin that says unlikely Stowers out hits Mancini the rest of the way, not even close or even close, sorry. No problem with the trade, but that is the trade-off. I do think that's that's probably true, but I also agree with Vivek who said that gives you two months for a prospect to get time in the majors and in Stowers. And, you know, maybe Stowers can come out of the gates hot, but even if not, you know, you don't sacrifice all that you've worked for just at a outside shot at the playoffs when we have a nice window coming up here in the next several years and you can get Stowers and hopefully Vavra now some extra time to get acclimated as we head into 2023, get more DH at bats for Rutschman when he's not catching. And I really like the quote from Michael Elias that talked about, we see a championship window opening up. I think not enough people are uh, 
paying attention to that quote he made today. That's pretty exciting stuff right there. And, and to me, it means this offseason will be fun. Yeah, the, the Luis Castillo trade, I think, blew the lid on this market. And it's clearly a seller's market because you have a lot of teams kind of in that fringe territory where the Orioles are right now. You have that additional wild card spot. But then, you know, it also helps that you have teams like the Reds that are struggling where they are clearly need to rebuild that have tradable players on their roster. So whether that's going to motivate the Orioles to maybe make another move or two before tomorrow's deadline remains to be seen, but that's important context to consider when you're looking at how this is playing out. And frankly, you're going to see a lot of things. You're going to see teams that pick clear directions like the Yankees, like the Mariners, like the Reds, and probably like the Orioles. You're going to see teams that are just doing something like the Red Sox. I don't really know what that is. (laughs) But uh, I guess there's some strategy to it. So it's going to be all over the map. But I think right now, if you have players that are tradable, that will get you a lot of prospects back in return. You're going to do it. And to anyone that thought that this was the time that the Orioles were going to go get Pablo Lopez or another starter that has multiple years of team control, wait a few months. Uh, Let the market correct itself a little bit. Because if you trade for Pablo Lopez now, you probably wouldn't like the packets that the Orioles were sending to the Marlins. And it would have to be, uh, you would be subtracting from your long-term window there a little bit. Yeah. I, like we mentioned, I think it was last week and I talked about this. I'm fine with looking at this market and what some of these relievers are getting. Who Was that the Cubs or what the Cubs got from the Yankees? Was that a deal I saw earlier? And there mm-hmm. are some unbelievable trades going on for relievers, which happens pretty much every year. Teams get desperate. They want to shore up the back end of their bullpen. The Brewers, that return they got for Josh Hader, I don't know. AJ Preller is his own man. That's all I'll say. Um, but, like, I am fine. I, I think by the end of this show, trade one of those relievers. Get Just one. Like, give us one. If you can get that kind of return, I have no issues with trading a reliever here. And then you still got a solid roster at the major league level. And you can bring up D.L. Hall. You can bring up Kyle Stowers. Taron Vavra is up now. Apparently, he just got his first major league hit as we went on the air. Um Yusniel Diaz is up. I don't know if we want to talk about that. I mean, that was just, I like Rock's photo, zoomed out photo of the lineup. Like, I don't know if anybody's going to notice this or not, but um, yeah, as we were morning, Trey Mancini, Yusniel Diaz is up, which <laughs> I don't think very many people care at this point. But um, like, you've got some guys here. Jordan Westberg, I think, could be up in the major leagues by the end of the year. You're going to make this roster better. And even if they do slump and it takes time because that jump is a major jump, guys are going to struggle then they get their struggles out of the way this year. And next year you have a better idea of what they can do in the major leagues. And yeah, go AJ Perler this off season and trade, trade 10 prospects, acquire two starting pitchers, go sign an elite shortstop an elite outfielder, whatever you want to do, go crazy this off season and let's do it. But yeah, this trade deadline, I mean, it's, it's this, this trade deadline wasn't it for the, for the buy. Yeah. Let's trade Jorge Lopez for, Mackenzie Gore and uh, Robert Hassel, and then just put Felix Bautista in the closer role. No, I mean, I I thought teams were holding on to their prospects nowadays, but man, not this trade deadline. Yeah, and before we move on completely, and we are going to talk about um, John Rose and Alfredo going up a little bit, this probably is a good time to talk about Diaz um, and the decision to bring him up now. I don't really know what it means, and for anybody that's Clamoring for Kyle Stowers right now, I get it, but he's going to get to the major leagues sooner rather than later. I'm not concerned about the fact that it wasn't him that came up today. 
to me, this is pretty much your window to see what you have with using LDS. Because we just talked earlier about a lot of the important decisions you're going to have to make with this 40-man roster. And Diaz has struggled to stay healthy um, pretty much since he joined the Orioles organization back in 2018. And right now he is healthy. The numbers at Norfolk haven't been great, but injury plague season, but right now he is healthy and you have a chance to get him some major league at bats to see what you have. And in that sense, I kind of like that move, bring him up, let him rotate between the corner outfield spots and D8s, even if you primarily play him against lefties, get him at bats and then make the decision this off season. Is he part of our plans for 2023? Um, did he do well enough that you could possibly put him in a trade package to get something in return or do you just move on entirely knowing that you've got, you know, players that you want to protect players that you're going to acquire to make the major league roster better and Diaz becomes expendable at that point. So I think that if you're going to make that decision, calling him up now is the correct move. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Like I was saying before the show, maybe they just didn't want to rush Stowers up to just go to Texas and travel to Baltimore. Maybe they just want him to meet in Baltimore while things are still up in the air with Santander could be traded within the next 20 hours or so. And yeah, I mean, he's either going to stagnate in AAA and then make a decision in the off season, or you try to just see what you got, see what he can do. If maybe him getting that shot finally motivates him and sparks something and, and maybe you have something, but either way, I feel like he's, He's in a, a crossroads where he's going to have to perform or he's going to be removed from the 40-man roster. Maybe it's even a, a tryout for an off-season trade. I don't know, but it, I, I'm fine to see him up here right now. And if Santander gets traded tomorrow, Stowers will be up right behind him. If he doesn't, I still think Stowers will be up. But now that the DH spot is open, you have room to maneuver these guys around, get Taron Vavre more at-bats, Adley Rutschman more at-bats, Kyle Stowers, get up here, get some at-bats, Yusniel Diaz, all hands on deck. Uh, let's see what he can do. I don't know. Kyle Stowers, uh, as someone pointed out the other day, Stowers is only hitting 260 at AAA, so he's not even that good. But um, no, like Diaz, I feel like Diaz is only up because he's on the 40-man roster. Stowers isn't on the 40-man, is he? Mm-hmm. I, that was just the weird COVID taxi squad mm-hmm. loop all day. They were to pull him up there, so – yeah, he's not on the 40-man, so you don't have to make that decision right now while I'm sure there may still be roster turnover uh, in the next couple of hours. So, yeah, just if Diaz comes up and does something great, I don't have super high hopes. He's looked – he looked – of course, this is the pattern. He looked great at the beginning of the year. He was healthy. He looked energized. He looked refreshed, uh, making good contact, and then he got hurt. Then he comes back, and you know, lately it's like – I think he's been hitting a little better lately, but – I mean, it's kind of like Eric Longenhagen said back way back when we had him on the show last year, 2020. Um, you know, you pound him with fastballs up in the zone. He's not going to reach. He's not going to reach those. And I started noticing that a lot once Eric Longenhagen pointed that out. And that's kind of the easy textbook how to beat him, to be honest. You pound him with fastballs up or in, and then you throw junk away, and he's fishing every single time uh, down there in Norfolk. So. I don't have a lot of hopes for Diaz, but yeah, I have no issues with he's up. Give him one last shot, and if he does something, trade him. If not, see you later. Yeah, and uh, hey, this is what we all dreamed of. Dean Kramer in a starting rotation. You snail Diaz roaming in the outfield <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> so, yeah, we did it. We won the train. Move on now to the MLB draft. And 
you've been hearing a lot of draft coverage lately. Today was really the last milestone day of the draft process, which was the draft signing deadline. Now, the Orioles, things got a little bit interesting today. Uh, it looks like last week that Carter Young, a shortstop out of Vanderbilt, who was expected to transfer to LSU, would not be signing with the Orioles and would instead follow up on his transfer to LSU and hope to improve his stock, go higher than the 17th round next year, hopefully by rebounding with the bat. Nolan McClain, a two-way player out of Oklahoma State that the Orioles were looking to develop as a pitcher that would occasionally play D8s, still looks like he was going to sign at that point in time. However, Monday afternoon, things took a much different turn. The Orioles ended up agreeing the terms with Carter Young, while Nolan McClain was among the prospects that did not sign with the Orioles. Jim Callis reported this afternoon that there were some disagreements between the Orioles and McLean's camp over the results of a post-draft physical. At this point, we don't know what that physical revealed. We don't know a lot of the specifics, and we're not going to speculate on that. But that apparently was at the root of the Orioles and McLean failing to come to a deal. The Orioles also did not come to terms with Miami reliever Andrew Walters, who we talked about last week. James Six Jr. and Alden Mathis, the 15th and 19th round picks, respectively, also did not sign. So in the end, the Orioles ended up awarding Young with their fourth highest bonus in this draft to get a guy who draws rave reviews for his defense, but his bat has been a problem since he suffered a shoulder injury a few years ago. So, Bob, I'll start with you. When we were on the air last week, we talked about Young a little bit, but the three of us at that time were kind of under the belief that he probably wasn't going to sign. Then at one point last week, it looked like he definitely was not signing. And then all of a sudden, Monday afternoon, we see things turn and he agrees to terms with the Orioles. So just your thoughts on Young joining this organization. A shock, uh, to be honest. I mean, even when we first drafted, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, emergency backup option. I don't really have to learn all that much about because he probably isn't going to sign. Well, emergency initiated. He he signs and Orioles get another toolsy shortstop to add to the system, which is awesome. But I, I just want to I want to get a sense of how good and healthy he is coming off of that shoulder injury. Obviously, not exactly sure the nature of that and how much it's healed since it happened. But let's get him into the FCL. Maybe he plays this year. Maybe he doesn't. But I'm just curious to see how he performs once he's in the system and what this player development team can get out of him because they sure paid him enough money to make me think they see something in him that they like a lot because they paid him more than Judd Fabian got, which was our fourth pick of the night in the the comp B round, comp C, one of the comp rounds. And um, yeah, so I'm excited just because of the money they threw at him. They went a little bit into the taxed amount of dollars over the 100% limit since they didn't sign a third round pick. And we get another third round pick next year. The second overall second pick in the third round in the 2023 draft will be the Orioles. So, you know, it's a silver lining. I, I was a big fan of the McLean draft pick and I thought he had a lot of potential, but Hey, I mean, if there's something weird with the physical, then maybe it just uh, is better out how it turned out. I mean, I think literally everyone was shocked to see Carter Young sign. Uh, and it's just, to me, it just made too much sense to go to LSU. And I think LSU, I don't know if it was LSU specifically that announced their incoming transfer class. And so that was the report that went around saying he's going to LSU. He's not going to sign with the Orioles. But I mean, that was it. And so 
it's nothing official like, as far as he could still sign with the Orioles and as he did today. But I just thought you could still get that NIL money and you're going to join a big time LSU lineup with you're going to have a bunch of eyeballs on you at all times. And if you can turn things around and if the shoulder injury really did hamper you as much as it probably did, then it wouldn't take that much for him to improve his draft stock, considering his prospect pedigree coming out of high school. Uh, and so you see that draft stock rise, you see the, that bonus check rise, and it's a win-win situation. And if he flamed out at LSU next year, he still gets is going to get paid while in college, and he doesn't have to spend next year bouncing around the Carolina League with Delmarva. And like, I mean, no disrespect to Delmarva and what all the hard work that's going on down there, but I imagine a year at LSU is going to be a lot more fun <laughs> than Salisbury, Maryland. Uh, I've only spent three hours in Salisbury, Maryland, but and only seen the baseball field, but. I've heard things about LSU uh, and it sounds a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, I just think you give him $1.3 million. It's super risky. I don't think anyone's going to deny that, but the value there is unbelievable. You pick a part of the game all you want, but I just don't think you can pass up that potential that he brings in. Uh, So he had a 900 OPS with 31 extra base hits his sophomore season in the SEC. So many issues about the swing. This organization can fix swings. So if it does work, the Orioles can work some magic there, then you've got a huge win. And if, like you guys mentioned the trade thing, he becomes an an uber attractive trade piece for this organization. Uh, You move him next year. You sell high, move him as part of a deal. You move him this, this, he's he's not going to play. I don't see him playing the next four or five weeks, but you move him at next year's trade deadline uh, as part of a big package. So yeah, this is, this is a, a, a good win for the Orioles to bring him in. And it does, Kind of a little bit help the the sting there with McLean, but you got a 98 mile an hour fastball and someone who was going to be arguably the third best pitching prospect in the system that you bring in. He was a, a super exciting pick, and I can't lie there. Like that's that's that was disappointing to see that he didn't sign. Yeah, McLean was my favorite pick of, of day two of the draft, and I really thought that the Orioles were going to agree with terms with him with him and. I wasn't as excited about the stuff on the mound. I was intrigued by the two-way profile. How were the Orioles going to develop that? Apparently the plan was for him to DH, I think one or two days a week at least when he Mm -hmm. wasn't pitching. So you would have been able to see that raw power that he showed at Oklahoma State and then see him continue to develop on the mound as well. Um, As I said at the top of this segment, we don't know exactly why things fell through yet other than it was reportedly a problem with the physical that the two sides couldn't agree on. But yeah, McLean goes back. And then with Young, I think that there is a gamble here. You're gambling on Young really getting his, you know, timing at the plate back, but then improving his swing decisions at the same time. When you read reports on him, chasing fewer balls out of the zone is really going to be crucial for him. But if he manages to do that, you've got a switch hitting shortstop who plays good defense with power. I think even if he's not going to be a guy that hits for a high average and his strikeouts and linger is a concern, that's a profile that's going to interest most teams. And let's not forget that this is an organization right now that is rich in shortstop depth. And I thought that might be one reason why Young went to LSU. But now you're going to put him in an organization that has guys like Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, Joey Ortiz, Daryl Hernandez, Colin Burns. There's so many interesting options at that position for the Orioles now. And now you throw young into the mix and, you know, it's going to require some work, but the raw skill set is interesting. 
Yeah, that question there, I don't know who that was that asked, is, is Young among the top six at it there? Is Young among the top six shortstops in the organization? Uh, to be honest, it, fringy. I, I don't – maybe. Uh, maybe six best, which is a testament to how deep this position is. And like I said, if, if he improves – and I'm sure organizations, plenty of organizations have – some pretty glowing scouting reports on him from back in high school. And everybody knows what type of prospect he was back in the day. And if he can get into the Orioles organization and other teams see like, oh, he's hitting the ball really well in Baltimore right now. What are they doing? Let's get out there. Let's scout him. What's he doing differently in Baltimore? Uh, then he becomes a, a massive trade piece, like I mentioned earlier. And you don't really lose anything in this farm system by trading him and you can get a, an MLB pitcher for him as part of this package. So yeah, this is, that's why I like him joining the organization so much. And maybe he comes and just hits so well and plays so well that he climbs to those ranks and he's right there with, you know, the Jackson holidays and gunners and he's right behind them in the rankings. We, we don't know. Like, there's so, so many questions with him. It's just a matter of wait and see with what he looks like when he's finally healthy and on the field. Yeah, I mean, he's probably in the top 10 of the organization's shortstops, I would say. You have Gunnar Henderson, Jackson Holiday, Jordan Westberg, Dale Hernandez, Joey Ortiz, Frederick Bencosme, Leandro Arias. Uh, what do we got here? What do we got here? Colin Burns, Isaac De Leon, Anthony Servideo. I mean, we have a lot of talent at shortstop. So he's either 10th or 11th or 9th, but in a season, this time next year, he could easily be top five in that if he explodes back onto the scene. But either way, it's just talent that you're going to have that can play good defense, has potential with the bat, and versatile. You know, with that kind of defense, you can move these people around. Oh, yeah, and Eric mentions, uh, was it Adam Crampton uh, also? So, yeah, shortstops galore. I like it. Yeah, Crampton is a shortstop out of Stanford who was the Pac-12 Defense Player of the Year this past year. So that you're getting a good glove there at shortstop. Focusing on the other players that didn't sign for a minute. Um, we'll talk about Walters, who I noted last week as a player from day three that I was intrigued by, had a really successful year at Miami this past year, but regarded as sort of a one pitch pitcher with a good fastball and kind of a slurve type breaking ball that would need some refinement. The issue was that Walters apparently really wanted to play with his brother at the University of Miami last year. Set a bonus demand that the Orioles did not meet and opted to go back to Miami. So, Nick, I, I think we knew that this was a possibility that Walters was not going to sign. But did anything really surprise you with the outcome here? A little bit, just because, I mean, he's, he's a relief prospect. I feel like he's strictly a relief prospect. And... I thought for what it's worth, I mean, the Orioles did pick up Daniel Fetterman last year, who went from undrafted free agent to struggling in Delmarva. Statistically, the numbers were not good in Delmarva. So he's striking everybody out in Aberdeen and having a really good season. And so I thought maybe if they're buddy-buddy, they were teammates at Miami, maybe Fetterman uh, can have a little, be a little voice in there to help bring Walters in. But I think, honestly, like I know you guys are probably higher on Walters than I am. I don't really have a huge like real solid opinion about him there's no way to hell that any team was giving him 1.7 million dollars uh he did that on purpose because like you said he wanted to play with his brother and i get that like i have a younger brother we both played the same sports growing up and honestly like maybe this is just the softer dad in me coming out now at this point in life but like if i had that opportunity then i would take the, it would take 
close to that amount of money as well to change my mind. I'd want to play with my brother in college and give my family that opportunity to watch us together out on the field. But call me crazy for for that. But I wish him all the best. Go win a championship in Miami. But I'm not going to be too worried that we missed out on him. He's a great pitcher. No denying that. But I'm fine with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was definitely intrigued. I would have loved to get that fastball you know, into the system and just see how fast he can rise up the ranks working out of the bullpen. But I mean, for him, I, I respect the decision to go back because what's the worst that could happen? He'll be what a 15 through 20 round pick again next year. And as still a relief prospect, they could move quickly. I mean, no harm, no foul. That's what these, you know, the back half of the draft is for. You take a flyer on some people and hope you can uh, convince them to stay. And uh, yeah, best of luck to him. But uh, maybe we'll we'll draft him next year. We'll see. Yeah, I was intrigued because it, it looks like the kind of pitcher that you could move quickly if he was able to hone that breaking ball. But $1.7 million for a relief prospect in any context is a big ask. And, you know, best of luck to him and best wishes to him if going back to Miami is what he wants. And like Bob said, he's a talented pitcher. He'll probably get in the 15-20 round you know, of the draft next year with another good year at Miami. So, you know, it it was an interesting pick, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's a big loss, especially because you've got a lot of arms already in this farm system that you could probably put into that relief mold now that are higher up the rankings, you know, probably from Aberdeen up and get to the majors quickly. Just look at the draft picks they signed too. They did get Graham uh, Fireved, I always have to think about that last name before I say it out loud. Uh, he's kind of that same mold, not as electric as uh, Walters is, but a predominantly a one-pitch reliever, electric, a guy who, if he hits, could move up pretty quickly through, through the organization. So you still got that guy. Um, I think to me, the interesting one, though, was Alden Mathis. Like, I don't understand why he didn't sign. I mean, the report that came out was that uh, he wanted to finish his degree. That was important for him. Uh, and he felt like Richmond was something special as brewing in Richmond, Richmond baseball. It's nothing special as brewing down there. Sorry, Alden, but uh, I can tell you that already. Um, but like he wants, he has all this unfinished business, quote unquote, academically and on the, the baseball diamond. So I guess I, like, I get that as well. But the thing with me, with both of them and the fact that he really wants to pitch, and I don't think the Orioles were going to give him, didn't sound like the Orioles were going to give him that opportunity. But I just found it interesting that both Mathis and Walters had quotes saying they had no clue the Orioles were even interested. And the Orioles went and took that flyer. Um, that was the only thing that kind of stood out to me. But like Bob said, you're at a point now, look at this farm system. You can take some risk with your 19th round draft pick. That's no big issue at the end of the day, I guess. Yeah, and, and Walters and Mathis would have represented more upside than I think you would typically get at the 18th or 19th round pick. So I don't have a problem with taking a chance and not having it work. Yeah. I mean, we've always signed all of our draft picks, at least. Well, that's a bit of a misnomer because there was only one year with 20 rounds, one year with five, and we didn't sign all 40 in 2019. But it seems like, you know, their their goal is to sign all the draft picks when they're coming out of the draft. And um, Brad Selick was pretty upfront right away that, hey, we're not as confident that we can do that this year. And now we see why. And, hey – it's the last couple of rounds of the draft. You take some big swings, maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. But as long as you're hitting at the top, that's what's most important. And then you get the interesting guys throughout. 
And they still signed two other pitchers too. So if you're worried about not signing a couple of pitchers then at the back end of a draft, they got Hayden Nierman from UNLV and Trey Nordman from Limscombe, who I know no one has ever heard of before today. I know I did not uh, until they signed, but I mean, looking at them, same thing, really interesting pitch metrics, a lot of success in college, uh, guys who maybe they're more reliever type prospects who move quickly up through the system, but I mean, they're certainly interesting guys the more you dig into each of those names uh, that join the organization as well. So again, it's best of luck to the guys who didn't sign, but we got who we got and let's go. Let's roll with them. We should mention because this was not official last week that Zach Sowalter, the Orioles 11th round pick, um, high school right-hander that I know we were all three really intrigued by, did sign today. So that's one good prospect that the Orioles pick up. Yeah, I'm a big fan of him. And he actually does kind of take the sting out of losing McLean a little bit just because, hey, a high school pitcher with upside and mid-90s fastball, breaking stuff, blah, 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 change up, we're going to teach you. Um, he, he enters my top 100 right away, and he, he's a guy that could easily rise up to his ranks and be like a Carter Baumler where this time next year, a year and a half from now, he's in our top 30. I mean, he's that kind of stuff. So let's just see. You know, there, It's not like we're lacking for upside out of this draft just because we missed out on a few guys. My other thing with Showalter was I never understood why everyone seemed to think he was going to get like a million plus dollars. He was, I think I mentioned last week, he wasn't a Miami or Florida State commit. Like he was a USF commit. I mean, that's not degrading who he is as a pitcher, but I imagine it's not going to take too much to persuade you. You can go pro or you can go to South Florida University, University of South Florida, whatever it is, and go play in like, what are they, Conference USA? Uh, I so half a million bucks or what? Just over four hundred thousand, around four hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's a good a good dollar amount for a guy, a guy who does have a pretty high ceiling. So yeah, that, that does help a little bit. And there's your 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 high school. Your was that the only that was the only high school pick, right? With the Orioles, other than Jackson, other than Jackson Holiday, which yeah, there's a special case there. But yeah, so I mean, how many times have we said when the Orioles go high school, you pay attention because they turned out. Right now, the minor league is pretty darn well. So, yeah, Showalter is going to be a, a fun one to watch when, when we finally get to see him. So now to um, finally get to talk about an Orioles prospect that has been in the system all year and producing and doing really good things. That's uh, a fun detour on this episode, and that's John Rhodes getting the promotion from high A Aberdeen to double A Bowie. If you've listened to our show this year, you know that we're pretty high on Rhodes, who was drafted out of the University of Kentucky. Last year by the Orioles, 2022 marks his full season professional debut. And he has been one of Aberdeen's steadiest hitters. He leaves the Ironbirds with an 817 OPS, five home runs, and 16 stolen bases in as many attempts, which is a stat that I had not noticed until just now. But really solid contributor at a ballpark that definitely tilts towards pitchers. Big part of the reason why Aberdeen has been as good as they are this year and had he not missed times an injury, it's easy to believe that he might have gone up a few weeks ago when Connor Norby, Colton Kowser, and Kobe Mayo were promoted. So, Nick, you actually, I believe, just wrote about Rose over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. So I want to start with you here. I think we knew that this move was coming at some point. Um, so it was not terribly surprising to see him get promoted. But what were your impressions of his performance at Aberdeen and what do you expect to see from him at Bowie? I knew this was coming soon. This had to come. Because, first of all, we, we've got to stop 
pulling up batting average and basic baseball card statistics to make proclamations about prospects. Uh, that that's just some of the comments that I've seen. John Rhodes is not struggling. Uh, John Rhodes has had a fantastic season at Aberdeen and he's earned this promotion. And I've said all season that I think he takes some of the best at bats in the system. He's consistent in terms of the quality of contact he makes just overall gameplay. And, you know, I think two things with Rhodes stick out to me, like Aberdeen can degrade you and make you feel like you're the problem uh, when it, it's, it's not, it's Aberdeen. Um, just like Frederick and pitching, right? Like look at Colton Kowser and look at Connor Norby. Connor Norby's numbers sucked. They were terrible. Those baseball card stats. He got promoted to Bowie and look what he's doing. Um, Colton Kowser had a, an unbelievable week against Altoona. I don't know if those Altoona pitchers are going to survive another week in their system. Colton Kowser, unbelievable uh, week this past week. But um, I think you could very easily see the same thing happening to John Rose now that he's in double A. It may take some time to settle in, but, um, you know, if you look at some of the national reports on John Rose, I noted in my article that I saw in a couple different places that they noted the issues with John Rose were the hit tool and he swung and missed too much, too many pitches in the zone. Well, this year, if you look at qualified hitters, Joe, this is all in the fan graphs, Joey Ortiz right now has the lowest swinging strike rate in the organization at 7.8%. But that's only because John Rhodes doesn't qualify because he missed a couple of weeks there with the wrist injury. He's just he's just short of the qualifying mark in terms of plate appearances. But if he did, he would be number one. He's at 7.6% swinging strike rate for John Rhodes, lower than Joey Ortiz. And I think shout out to Adam Pohl, uh, one of the voices of the, the Bowie Bay Sox. He had a, a good tweet thread earlier this morning where he was talking about some other stops he's made in his career, specifically looking at Hunter Pence. I think he called Hunter Pence's game when he was in high A and in double A. And not comparing Colton Kowser to Hunter Pence, but saying that when you get to double A, that's arguably the biggest jump in the minor leagues, as we all know. But a lot of hitters really find comfort in moving up to double A because the pitchers throw more strikes. The stuff is better, it's more crisp, but they see more pitches in the zone. And so I actually think of John Rhodes eats fastballs and pitches in the zone alive. And so actually the top four on the Orioles leaderboard for lowest swinging strike rate are Ortiz, John Rhodes, Colton Kowser, and Cesar Preto. And all four of those guys are now going to be in Bowie's lineup. And oh yeah, Kobe Mayo is going to come back in the next couple of days to that Bowie lineup as well. But yeah, I think John Rhodes is one of the biggest, if not the biggest sleeper of last year's draft class. And this kid is a uber athletic and a, a hitter, a hitter with power. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a big Rhodes fan as well. What a way to go out. I mean, his last game with the uh, Ironbirds was four for four with two doubles, two steals, two RBIs. I feel like there's more to it than that, but he just went out on a great game. He started off so hot this year, and it was only cooled off by an injury. It's a little slow coming back, struggled a little bit for a while there, but he's back on track. He had been playing better, and to go out with a bang like that, and then just end his day getting told, hey, you're going up to double A Billy. That had to be an awesome day. And all roads lead to Bowie. And that offense is uh, going to be even better now. Even th- losing Shane Fontana, but gaining John Rhodes, I think that is a, uh, a fair trade for that lineup. And I, I agree. I think he's the type of player that I could just see taking off now that he's out of that the dungeon that is Aberdeen Ironbirds Stadium to uh, two hitters. It's worth pointing out, too, with Rhodes that he will just turn 22 in two weeks. He was barely eligible for the draft last year, was actually drafted as a 20-year-old. So to be a 22-year-old 
at you know get that promotion to double A now. He's going to play every day there. Uh, it puts him in a really good position. And the one thing I've always come back to with Rhodes, and this has been on my mind with him since I saw him in person at Del Marville last year. If you give me a corner outfielder with power potential and a good arm, I will take that profile every day. Rhodes had that last year, but now it looks like he's really becoming a more complete hitter. He's not swinging and missing and pitches in the zone as much. His on-base percentage at Aberdeen was excellent. So there's a lot of things that he's doing really well that last year when he was struggling at Kentucky were question marks of is John Rhodes ever going to get this because the raw skills are interesting. The raw skills alone could have put John Rhodes in the first round last year, but he slipped because of some of those offensive struggles. And frankly, the Orioles were lucky to get him. Yeah. And he's honestly a five tool player because the don't be fooled by the home run turtles. He has power. He has real power in that bat. He can hit. He's got great plate discipline. He can run, obviously, with the stolen bases that you can. I did not know that he was 16 for 16 either until you said that. I knew he had 16. I just didn't know he hadn't been caught. He plays really good defense in the corner outfield, and he can even play second base in a pinch, and he's got a cannon for an arm. So, yeah, I th- I've said it e- even going into this past offseason. I think he's probably the most underrated player in our system, and I continue to believe that. I would have to agree with that that John Rose assessment. I just that Bowie lineup, man. When you think about that, where is the weakness in that lineup? I, I mean, this is going to be an unbelievable team to watch. It, it, especially coming off last week, they scored like almost sixty runs in five games, and with 13, 14, 15 home runs they had. It, now you get to add John Rose to this lineup is just truly remarkable. The the depth that we're starting to see in the upper levels of the minor leagues. Um, you know, it's I wonder. At the same time, you look at this Bowie roster and how it's constructed already, though. Is is this it for Zach Watson? Have have we seen because I haven't seen his he hasn't played the last couple of days, I don't think. And you're adding another outfielder to the system. I know Shane Fontana's gone, but at the same time, like Hudson Haskins back, he's healthy, he's playing well. Watson, we saw, I think Zach pointed this out how Watson was batting a lot of eight nine in the lineup, really hasn't been able to pick it up. I'm almost wondering if this is kind of it for him. I think it's more the end of the line for Andrew Dashbach to, I'd hate to say it because you got JD Mundy, TT Bones could be the next one up potentially. Yeah. He's been struggling really bad. Maybe if, you know, Diaz is now in Baltimore, say Santander gets traded and Stowers goes up to Baltimore, maybe one or both of Watson and Haskin could get a shot at AAA to kind of open up a little more playing time for Watson to end the year. But yeah, I mean, it's a problem when you have a deep farm system and they're continuing to move up the ladder. If you stagnate for a little bit, uh, you take the risk of being passed up. And, you know, I still think Zach Watson has some upside, but it just hasn't happened for him this year. Whether it's with the Orioles or not, rooting for him, hope he uh, figures it all out. But I'd rather see it be uh, under the Orioles banner. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, when Zach Watson was at his best last, last year, the adjective electric would have been accurate hidden for power, playing an excellent center field, running probably as well as anybody in the farm system. You still see the defense and you still see the speed, but the bat just has not been there this year. The strikeout percentage, which was a concern that the three of us had last year when it was hovering just under 30% at Bowie, is now up around 35%. He has a WRC plus of 53. 100 is a league average hitter. He's down at 53 right now. And last year with Bowie, that figure was at 106. 
So it just has not been his year at the plate. And I don't know what adjustments he needs to make, but Watson definitely has to pick up. And Dasbach, you know, there was a time there earlier this year where Dasbach was probably Bowie's best home run hitter. But he definitely has tailed off lately. And Mundy, yeah. too. Mundy's having a pretty tough year hitting the wall at double A. It happens. Yeah, I, I do agree there with the Doshbach. I wouldn't even I wasn't even thinking about Doshbach to be completely honest. You talking about increased strikeout rate? He was at thirty six percent last year. He's striking out at basically forty percent this year. Uh, average at just 184, 84 WRC plus. I, I feel like it's almost literally home run or strikeout with Doshbach. Uh, it's pretty close to being accurate. Uh, and now that Toby Welk is healthy and hitting really well. Uh, he hit really well in Aberdeen in his rehab. He's had a couple of nice games this week with Bowie. Yeah, I could see maybe if you want to give Doshbach one last chance in AAA, uh, maybe. But um, I don't. he hasn't really earned that promotion. But, yeah, I have a f- the next couple of days. I'm surprised we didn't see more today. But I feel like we got to see these draft picks enter Delmarva, or the FCL at least, FCL, uh, this sometime this week. I thought that we'd see a lot more cuts than we have. But it's really only been, what, Christopher Cespedes? That's been about it. But you have to imagine more of those are coming in the next couple of days. Yeah. And I guess, should we talk about Shane Fontana, who gets the bump up to AAA? I mean, he's 25 years old, you know, not a young prospect anymore, but 2019 draftee in the outfield who kind of got slept on until this year. He's had a fantastic season for AA Bowie. <laughs> he's walking. What's his walk rate? Like 15 or 16 percent? 16, close to 16 and a half. Absurd. Huh? I just put it out there this morning. Uh yeah, 898 OPS, only 43 games because he, he was hurt there for a while. But 898 OPS in 43 games, 16% walk rate, 148 WRC+. plus. He's got the power. I asked last week, was he for real? Um, I This is a good sign for him. I mean, it, if anything, it's just more quality outfield depth. And, you know, it's good to see him. I, I think, too, not only did he lose that year of COVID, but he was a D2 guy. So he's probably going to be maybe a little bit slower in adjusting and developing to that big league game, but he's really come into his own this year. It's a very pleasant surprise because I don't think anybody had Shane Fontana on their radars at, at any point since he joined the organization. No, and I can kind of see what the Orioles are doing with him because, I mean, he's he's selling out for power in a big way. He definitely has the most power in his mm-hmm. career this year. In 2019, he had low strikeout rates, decent walk rates, but – now he's got the swing decisions on lock. He's just giving it his A swing because he's striking out almost 30% of the time, but he's hitting for power and he's still walking a ton. So obviously it's working for him. I feel like that's kind of the same thing they were trying to do with Johnny Riser before his injury. So it's it's a decent look. I mean, he could be the Robert Nishin we never knew we had, a little bit lower in the minors. Exactly. I mean, this has been a, a true surprise. I didn't see Fontana really delivering this much power. And yeah, I, I kind of knew Fontana as a guy that was good outfield depth wherever he was playing. You know, you could put him out there. He would give you decent at-bats. He'd play well defensively wherever he was. But in 54 games this year, he's already surpassed his home run total from last season. He had eight homers in 96 games between Bowie and Aberdeen last year. And then this season between Bowie and Aberdeen in – 40 or 51 games. That's not counting two games that he did down at the FCL. He's at nine home runs. So definitely seeing the power uptick this year that I was not expecting at all. We'll see if he can keep doing it in Norfolk. We know that's hitting home runs in that power rally out in right field is uh, pretty difficult, but uh, if he can do it there in Norfolk, then 
there you go. It's just it's just another piece, another piece of this puzzle. Yeah, let's hope he doesn't do what Dylan Harris did and uh, look great at double boo. He got up yeah. to AAA, and then unfortunately, those power alleys are a little, a little too, too big for him. But yeah, I, I feel a little bit better about Fontana than I did about Dylan Harris. Move on now to our final segment of the week, where we shout out players um, who are outside our top thirty, whether it's for something interesting in their stat line, a good game, or a good week, or just something in general we want to note about them. And I'm going to start with Nick, uh, who's got a familiar hitter in this segment, as well as a pitcher that the three of us have always had our eye on. I mean, I had to go T.T. Bowens, just add to his record here, if he is the record holder. Uh, we need somebody on, like, a, what is that, effectively wild? Everybody's got the databases to track, like, everything they say. Uh, have we reached uh, are we reaching that level at any point? Somebody going to track our uh, players that we do in this last segment? But um Bowens had a huge week, five games. It wasn't Asheville. We just talked about this, I know. But uh, he had 368, two home runs, three doubles, four RBIs. One of the best hitters for Aberdeen this year. He continues to just stay consistent. And it's that consistency with me that's making me say, I want to see him in Bowie. I want to see what he can do. Because the numbers have been far exceeded my expectations in Aberdeen this season. Uh, and he, you want to talk about knocking the snot out of a baseball. Uh, T.T. Bones can do that. Um, so hopefully he gets promoted sometime soon. And my pitcher, I just wanted to highlight this guy because I watched so much of him in college. And I was so happy when the Orioles drafted him. And he had a rough go early on. But Griffin McClarty, working at a Bowie's bullpen this year, he appeared in two games against Altoona, threw four innings, no hits, no runs, no walks, six strikeouts. So the best week McClarty has had probably in his career with the Orioles uh, it's good to see him. Um, hopefully, maybe this is something. Maybe they found a role with him out of the bullpen. You know, Tyler Birch had a really good weekend as well out of the Orioles bullpen. That's a name that I've been wanting to see more out of. But uh, just yeah, shout out to Griffin McClarty for a good week and hope he builds on that. Yeah, and also shout out to the guy we got back in the Jonathan VR trade who didn't give up a single run the entire month. Who I'm blanking on his mm-hmm. name, soft often left the Easton Lucas. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, so some good stuff from guys that had struggled earlier in the season. Good to see. Uh, for my hitter, I went with Trendon Craig, who had a pretty good week. Um, the only thing he's really missing this year is hitting for some power, which I think we we have to know is in there somewhere. He can unlock that. But he's got a walk rate near 14%. He is striking out a decent amount, closer to 30 but he's got a 115 WRC+. Plus, two, got his batting average up to 262 the 734 OPS. Like I said, if he was in for a little bit more power, that'd be closer to 800. But just wanted to shout out a guy who I feel like is underrated as far as just, I feel like he could be another guy that we're talking about next year or the year after that's an outfielder continuing to build up our depth. And the other guy I want to talk about is Luis De Leon, who is a 19, 18 year old um, pitcher in the DSL who. He's just got ridiculous numbers. He's 3-1 with a 1.89 ERA over 19 innings, 35 strikeouts to eight walks and only five hits allowed. So a whip under one and almost a uh, 18K per nine. So guy is just electric. And hopefully these are the young international arms that we'll continue to see rise up through the ranks, just like Davey Cruz, who's absolutely owning Delmarva right now. My hitter this week, I'm going to go with Luis Valdez. And I think one of the, we've talked a lot about Valdez's stolen base totals. He's at 53 steals for the season, which is one of the highest in all of the minor leagues. It's by far the highest in the Orioles farm system. 
But he's quietly put together back-to-back really good months at the plate. He hit 333 with 384 on-base percentage in the month of June. Followed that up by hitting 297 with a 387 on-base percentage, 12 walks against 20 strikeouts in the month of July, and 19 steals and 21 attempts. So one thing I think that I always want to see with a guy who has Valdez is kind of speed, and is showing it off the low levels of the minor leagues, is how often does he get on base? And while you know he's going to probably need to adjust to maintain an on-base percentage that's going to hover between 350 and 360, as he moves up through the farm system to see him at that kind of clip is a good sign to me. And he's become definitely become a better hitter as the season has gone on. You've seen the on-base numbers tick up a little bit each month. And with that has come the influx of stolen bases that has made him one of the best base stealers in the minor leagues. So, and a true spark plug for that Swordbirds lineup. So Valdez is my hitter this week, and I'm going to stick with the Swordbirds. They had an excellent week at Lynchburg. And a pitcher who delivered one of the better outings was Dylan Hyde, who in relief work on July 30th delivered five innings, no or one run on four hits, no walks, and seven strikeouts. Hyde was a pick out of the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown in the 11th round of last year's draft, but didn't make his professional debut until 2022. And he has just nine professional games um, in his career so far. So, we have not seen a lot of Dylan Hyde, but what we have seen so far has been solid. 37 strikeouts and 25 and a third innings pits. The walks are a bit high at 17, but hopefully this past outing is a springboard to him cutting those numbers down the rest of the way. Yeah, it's good to see Hyde finally get out there and get some consistent innings in. I think he's a very interesting arm. You know, even though there is some nepotism there being Brandon Hyde's nephew, <laughs> No, no relation. Completely uh, different spelling, but uh, dad jerks are awesome. Um, yeah, good picks there, everybody. Uh, are we going to talk about Zach Lowther being activated to Norfolk's roster? Is that a storyline in, in our rundown? Did not know that. <laughs> <what happened. laughs> Didn't know that. I mean, we had a much different rundown <laughs> at 2 o'clock this afternoon than we did uh, by 5 o'clock. So the Zach Lowther yeah. being activated in Norfolk might have made it into our 2 o'clock show. <laughs> Yeah, Maybe we didn't week. even. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we didn't even uh, get a chance to talk about the Kirby Perez interview that had some interesting quotes in it. I thought uh, everyone checked that out at BaltimoreBaseball.com. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we might dive into that in an upcoming episode, especially when we get into our top fifty prospect list, which is going to be updated on next Monday. So Bob triumphantly announced yesterday that he had finished his top fifty, but he has had to blow that up since then. Nick and I are working on ours. Um, I'll hopefully finalize mine after the trade deadline. And we'll have the updated list for you next Monday. It will also be available at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. And who knows? We might be back sooner than that, depending on what the Orioles do before Tuesday's trade deadline. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest covers on the Orioles. Ravens, college sports, and more. Also join the message board there to hop in and discuss and with fellow readers as well as contributors to the site. And follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge for all the latest minor league coverage and some news relating to our next show, which will be the top 50 for now. But again, as I said earlier, we might be back sooner depending on what the Orioles do between now and the trade deadline. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.